This is Labour. 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 Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. This is episode 29. Welcome, welcome to Labour Days. It's a slimmed down team this time of just me and Daniel. Uh, it's been a while since we uh, since we did an episode. It has been a while, I think. We should maybe attempt to give some sort of account of that or at least offer an apology uh, to, our, to our legions of... Uh, of fans who've undoubtedly been um, waiting uh, for this and particularly for the fact that we did put out a teaser in January saying that this episode, episode 29, was going to be about Liam's book. Liam, our producer, has written a book about James Connolly. Um, This episode isn't going to be about that, unfortunately, but we felt it had been long enough and we just wanted to kind of get back on the road. So that James Connolly episode is still um, in the pipeline. Uh, but this is just um, a little kind of, um, I don't know, an amuse-bouche maybe, something to um, just whet the appetite. Uh, and hopefully we will be returning to slightly more regular uh, production from this point forward. For me, it was um, really, it was seeing uh, Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart do a podcast and then seeing Ed Balls and George Osborne do a podcast. And I, that really spurred me to reunite because... Um, we too were two men who have spent many years pretending to hate each other, but actually mm. secretly very good friends. <laughs> and that's obviously well, that's, a winning uh, formula in the in the podcast world. So uh, yeah, uh, clearly there's there's a there's a trend for um <laughs> for for podcasts fronted by duos of irritating men. So I'm sure. Uh, Yes, I'm sure we can scoop up a whole a whole demographic, the the irritating men duo podcast fan base. <laughs> and with that in mind, uh, we are breaking slightly with tradition. Um, we are going to talk a bit about uh, current events, which is not, uh, you know, the classic kind of uh, uh, setup of our episodes. As usually, has been something from labour history or a kind of theme or uh, a sort of big picture topic uh we're just gonna talk a bit about because obviously uh the main thing that's happened sort of in this country in the trade union world since we last did an episode has been uh the biggest wave of industrial action in probably a generation so uh in some ways it probably would have been quite weird for us to come back uh cold and sort of not mention that at all so so how's it been for you daniel how's the strike wave been from your perspective well, as we record this, um, just a few hours a few hours ago, a quite significant and sustained piece of industrial action that me and my workmates on London Underground had been building for and that was about to take place next week was called off by uh, our union executive. So I'm feeling a little bit disappointed um, and uh, downcast about that, but... Um, in the interest of not making this conversation that we're having kind of too pegged to, you know, this particular day and what's what's happened in the last few hours, I'm not going to kind of dwell on that too much. And You never know by the time it goes out, you might have won your dispute. Exactly. And yes, then we'll have so to re-record, so try try not to. No, sure. We, we, we don't want to give this too limited a shelf life. There'd have been a big rank and file upsurge. The decision would have been overturned. We'll be, we'll be back out on strike. Um and uh, 
I'm also going to try and keep in check my uh, natural tendency towards kind of pessimism. Um, because I, look, I think the most important thing to say about the strike wave, as you alluded to there, is 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 uh, to to emphasise its kind of generational significance, right? Like it is the most significant, the, you know, the last year to to kind of summer between summer 2022 and now is is the most significant sustained upsurge in workers' struggle in our lifetimes, and it's the kind of thing. Um, you know, people like us have I've, I've been working to um, try and bring about. So that's uh, important and welcome and needs to be celebrated. And on a personal level, you know, I've been on strike more in the last year, um, despite the fact that sometimes action has been called off in a, in a way I wouldn't have agreed with. I've been on strike more in the last year than I had in the entire previous seven or eight years of working on the underground um so it's been a exciting moment to be involved with um in a lot of ways and i guess the big question that we might try and dig into a little bit um in the discussion we're about to have is how that increase in struggle is being turned or or, or can be turned into a more sustained revival of organization trade union organization and power at workplace level because i think i'll just i'll finish on this point that um you know as important and exciting and infusing as it has all been i think at the minute with some pockets of exceptions think that the movement still has a kind of broadly sort of top down um sort of uh top down dynamic um, and we're, we're yet to see um, a sustained revival in organisation and strength at the base. We're yet to see the re-emergence of any kind of independent rank and file movement, although, you know, we are seeing kind of maybe some germs of that in some places that we might talk about. Um, so that's the task, really. How do you turn the upsurge and struggle into a sustained revival at rank and file level? I started uh, last summer at uh, Royal, a job at Royal Mail, um, and uh, having having, so I managed to leave the NHS. Typically, leave the NHS just before it all kicked off industrially in the NHS, um, but still being quite involved. Do, uh, do you think? Do you think that's? Do you think there's a sort of causal link there? That do you think? Do you think your presence in the health sector is what was holding back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that tends to be. It tends to be the pattern. It tends to be the pattern that, uh, yeah. you know, it's like I left university the summer you're, of 2010 and then there was a huge upsurge in students. You're a, you're a sort of, you're a kind of, you're a kind of reverse Tom man, aren't you? Like you, you roam around and there's, there's a big upsurge in struggle in the place that you've just left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm always, I'm always in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> that's, that's what they'll put on my tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> My so my second so I was I went to Romel wasn't on a CWU grade job, and my second day on the job was a strike day, and I had to have uh, a conversation with my manager on my first day on the job, saying that I wasn't going to cross any picket lines because it, it's hugely in the culture of the organisation that uh, the the management grade so called um, go out on delivery when the post is uh, uh, go on strike and uh, very. <laughs> 
a, a very small number of people seemed to refuse to do that. So that was a bit of a baptism of fire. And uh, after uh, after several months in that job, I'm now in a, a workplace where there isn't a recognised trade union at all. So it's, that's uh, taking it back to the beginning, really, in terms of mm. uh, stuff to do. Well, um, you know what you you know what you have to do to ensure, you know, to ensure a upsurge in organisation. There, don't you? Leave, leave, exactly. Yeah, that's if it, I yeah. could, if I could just <laughs> work everywhere in the country for a day. <laughs> And leave, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. We'll uh, so 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 we're not we're not going to do we're not going to do a kind of chronology of this. I think probably most people listening are kind of aware that these big strike waves happened, and probably many, if not most, of our listeners probably will have been involved in it in some way, either directly mm-hmm. as a worker or having been to demonstrations, visited picket lines, etc. Um, so rather than giving a kind of like uh this is this is who's been on strike and how many days they've been on strike and stuff like that. We were just going to pick out some kind of general themes and and uh, stuff that's kind of stood out to us from uh, from the sort of disputes that's going on. One of which, I suppose, is like the ta- the tactics of the strikes. Because I, what I think is interesting is like in the twenty. T- I remember in the twenty tens the, the the very low level of industrial struggle in the twenty ten. It all there were one or two exceptions, but it almost always manifested itself in like the twenty-four hour strike as a mm. as a tactic. And like if you had a strike for more than like two days, that was like a huge deal, you know. Mm. Again, with with one or two exceptions. In this sort of wave, we've got very much still have the kind of twenty-four hour strike as a kind of tool in some of the long-running disputes that have been going on since last summer but we've also seen like a number of industries where that seems to have been sort of abandoned in favor of uh, longer action in some cases even indefinite action so I'm, I'm thinking like on the docks where they've sort of did sort of seven eight ten days at a time or some of the bus drivers that kind of geared up to do indefinite strikes why do why do you think that why do you think that change has kind of happened now? Um, uh, yeah, I mean you're right that one of the more encouraging things about this wave, as as you've said, is that the the indefinite strike has reappeared as a tactic, um, and it's it's probably worth emphasising just in terms of historical context that um, you only have to go back a generation really and this again this kind of ties into the idea of the present moment as kind of generationally significant if you go back a generation the indefinite strike was if not if not quite the like you know uniform standard was pretty kind of default as a tactic that's what a strike was right you know 70s 80s that's what a strike was you go out on strike and you stay out on strike either until you win your demands or until the strike collapses and you kind of have to go back to work. Um, and certainly that was the default tactic on which um, the movement that kind of recomposed the labor movement and, and uh, birthed a lot of the, the unions that we have today were based. Um, so, you know, the whole period where the strike form was reduced to this kind of token expression of protest that you do for one or maybe two days 
we have to see that in historical context and see how much of a retreat and a, an expression of weakness that was. So that's definitely something that's really positive. You flagged up the, the Dockers disputes, yeah, bus drivers, various other people have taken really sustained action. I mean, it is worth saying, and there's no getting away from this, that the significant majority of workers who've taken that more sustained action are in Unite. And a big part of the reason they've been able to do that is because Unite has more resources than most, if not any other union in the labour movement and have a policy, you know, a very good policy. They're using, this is the right thing for them to use their resources for. They have a policy of paying strike pay at a pretty high level. So most of their members know they can take sustained or even indefinite action and they're not going to suffer financially too much from doing that. Most of the unions don't have Unite's resources. So it is worth saying that it's not, it's not as straightforward a matter as saying, well, look, you know, the dockers and these bus workers and yeah. these various others took really sustained action. Everyone else should just do that. Um, yeah, and, and are... a lot of those workforces as well. Not, not, not small, but like small by comparison of bringing kind of 100,000 civil servants out. Mm. You know, like, you know, you might have a dock workforce of 1,500 or, or something like that. Sure. Um, yeah, that's, that's true as well. Um, but having said that, look, I, I, I think there's a lot more that um, even smaller unions could do to fundraise and to use resources more effectively to provide a bit of a cushion that could help sustain more prolonged action. And, I, and to me, it's a really clear um, lesson from uh, this strike wave that kind of sporadic stop-start action just does not work. Um, and two of the most prominent disputes nationally, the Royal Mail dispute and RMT's disputes on the National Rail, have been fought very explicitly on that basis. Offic leading officials in both those unions have, have used the phrase, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And Anahan have explicitly valorized the kind of sporadic pattern of action. And, and their argument is, you know, there's a kind of limited, finite amount of action that members are prepared to take. And you have to kind of parcel it out in a... Um, fairly cautious, kind of moderated kind of way. Otherwise, you'll exhaust the membership. Yeah. But the, rea the reality is actually stop-start action where people feel like they're going on strike a lot, but for a short amount of time each time, in my view, risks tiring people out much more yeah. than if you actually just go for it. And even on its own terms, you know, I've heard, I've heard a couple of people criticise that... Um, marathon not a sprint metaphor on the basis that you know you don't run a marathon by running 10 yards stopping for three months and then running another <laughs> 10 yards yeah i think you could you could really see it in the in royal mail like and and by the end of the dispute the the number of strike days that had been taken you sort of think if you'd done that as a block in the run-up to christmas you know if you'd done that as a kind of four-week block in december or something it would have had arguably much more impact and arguably and again it's kind of counterfactual ar arguably a bigger chance of winning the dispute as well i think i think one of one of the arguments and this this certainly was also the case of the royal college of nursing was kind of making this case when they started their strikes is that uh oh we need to start we need to start from a position that we can then escalate you know mm. so the rcn kind of they got a mandate across 
a lot of different hospitals and the first thing they did was they sort of brought half of them out one day and they brought the other half of them out on a different day mm. and that with with the argument that oh and then we can escalate to uh, to next time we do it we'll bring everyone out which they did and then we can escalate then to uh rather than bringing people out for two days we'll bring people out for three days which again they did so the rcn is an example of a union that that has done a kind of escalation strategy but it's still you're talking that over the over the space of the best part of six months to the point where you then have to because of the new law about reballoting you then have to run a whole new statutory ballot because you haven't really resolved the dispute within a six-month window sure i mean i think um i mean i think there is actually something to be said for that type of approach of having a kind of program of action where the escalation is sort of built in. But I think for me, what was um, limited about the way the RCN did it is that it was very much like, okay, we'll do the, we'll do this kind of first round of action. And they did start, you know, they'd started, they gave themselves a lot of room to escalate because they started with about the, you know, towards the, the lower end of the action they could have taken. Um, uh, but you know, having an approach of saying, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna build the escalation in over the course of a number of weeks or a number of months, or even over the life of the ballot," and, and thinking in terms of, "Okay, we we're gonna try and win the dispute within the life of the ballot. We've got a six month window. We're gonna announce a, um, you know, d- d- discuss, decide upon, and agree a program of action over the life of the ballot that has the escalation built in." I think there is something to that um, because you know it sends a clear signal from the outset to the employer and to your own membership that um, you know we're in this to win this isn't token action and if you don't settle with us after the first round the second round of action is going to be bigger and then the third round is going to be bigger etc etc so I think that that kind of has its place and and that to me that's the answer to because one thing I encountered certainly in debates in my own union about taking sustained action is people say like oh, look you know the m- members aren't ready to go on strike for four five six days straight away and that's probably true you do ha- you do kind of have to build up to that but so that's where this idea of like a program of action with inbuilt escalation comes in the rejoinder is normally oh, we want to take the bosses by surprise but you know given that we have to give two weeks notice for any action anyway uh, I'm not sure there is that much of an element of surprise possible no. To, no. to to any any official action. So the benefits of having that kind of you know ongoing program of action with inbuilt escalation type approach seem to me to outweigh the, the risks. I mean the ca- the counter the counter argument again to oh people aren't ready to do it. There's a counter. I mean I've been on pickets of one day strikes when I worked in higher education sector where. You know, some people went in on the basis of there's no point because we're not doing it properly. We're we're only having a one day strike. I just, I'm not saying that's the case for everyone in every workplace, but there is a there is a kind of element of well, if we're going to do it, let's do it proper. And I th- and I think that's unintentionally. I've got an untested theory that that's kind of unintentionally come to the fore a bit because of the anti-union laws, because of the number of hoops you now have to jump through to even have a statutory strike, that I think there's, there's more of a feeling in a lot of workplaces and even among 
like union officials that like there's no point doing all of that and then having a 24-hour strike and then doing nothing else you know if you've if you've got to the point where you can have a lawful strike then you might as well like make a go of it you know sure i mean that's quite commonsensical and it's I suppose part of the difficulty and the problem of where we're at that 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 um way of thinking that you've described hasn't become more hegemonic and it isn't it isn't more taken for granted that you know you have to fr- you have to kind of front load your action as um yeah as, because uh, we're still like you say we're still in in a situation where some some leaderships are so you know like on the on the trains seem to be saying like well you know this dispute could go on to beyond the next general election like as if as if that's like a good thing you know mm. as if it's a good thing to not have won your dispute in a kind of two and a half year period or something like that you know because somehow it kind of shows how kind of uh resilient you are that you're kind of in it for the long haul and all the rest of it but actually at what point does it lapse into just a kind of tokenistic well i guess we're going on strike for a couple of days every month and that's sort of that's the kind of new normal and that's kind of the way things are now you know yeah and i mean i think that's a uh a product of you know after a certain point the kind of maintenance of the dispute becomes viewed by often by kind of union bureaucracy and, and, and sometimes a kind of layer of activists the maintenance of the dispute becomes viewed as the sort of end in itself um, and the horizon of okay we went into this dispute with particular demands which is something else we might talk about actually that, that the whole kind of question of disputes having kind of clear demands that are actually sort of seen through um that horizon kind of recedes and the longer a dispute drags on the more times you have to reballot you know i think you and i have both commented in in things we've in things we've written about um unions unions talking about renewing mandates as if that's a kind of victory in and of itself well the cw um when they were having their reballot six months into the dispute, and they've got an incredible result on a. Re- I mean, it is it is very impressive to get six months into a dispute after people have taken a not an insignificant amount of strike action to get a mandate, you know, as good as if not stronger than the one you initially got. No, no argument there. But the the slogan they were raising explicitly then was "Win the ballot, win the dispute." Yeah. And they did win the ballot, and then they took no further industrial action after having won that ballot, and then they have now accepted a deal which is not not dissimilar to a deal that was already on the table before that reballot was won. You know, and there's been similar language, I think, in the UCU about you know if we get the reballot, getting the reballot as a kind of almost as a kind of end in itself because it it means that we haven't forfeited the kind of leverage that we've got over the employers, you know. Mm. But it's something that until a few years ago, you wouldn't even have had to do anyway, mm. you know. And now it's now it's kind of a huge achievement to be able to do it. So look, just before we move past this question of sort of strike tactics, one of the other things you flagged up as something we might talk about kind of under this heading is um, uh, picketing and you know the actual organization of of picket lines as a as a form of direct action 
and um it's uh, it's right at the right at the beginning of the um the wave in one of the rail strikes um a little exchange that uh, Mick Lynch had with Kay Burley on Sky became quite famous where Kay Burley was trying to kind of push him on um, the alle an allegation that there'd been some intimidation on picket lines. And she was um, talking about, you know, potentially violent mass picketing during the minor strike. And Mick Lynch said, you know, in his, in his very impressive kind of way where he's, he sort of cut a lot of the journalists down to size with this sort of manner. He 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 was being interviewed from a picket line out, and he sort of turned round and pointed to the six or seven people standing in a car park behind him, which is where they they have the picket line. He said, "You know, do you not know what a picket line looks like? That that there there's one behind me. Does that look like the minor strike to you?" And this was sort of celebrated. You know, people were making T-shirts with that on uh, you know silhouette of that image and him uh, the quote do you not know what a picket line looks like and you know it was kind of funny and it's nice to see these journalists be chopped down to size but there's something a, something a little bit sort of disappointing about some of the underlying assumptions that are operative there um and actually i would like there to be picket lines that do look more like the picket lines from the minor strike that are mass expressions of um, the leveraging of workers' power uh, and, and that are a bit more confrontational and that are about actually stopping people from going into work and shutting down production at a workplace. Picket lines become sort of have become kind of demonstrations more than they are picket lines and getting back to a culture of more, conf you know, you uh, I use the word confrontational slightly advisedly here, but hopefully you and listeners to this podcast will um, understand the sense in which I'm using that. Getting back to kind of more assertive um, forms of, of direct action picketing is going to require a degree of defiance of the law. It's not something it's easy to do um, and shouldn't be talked about glibly or lightly, but I'm hopeful that coming out of this period where you know, at the very least, striking is not such a, you know, lot, lots more people than previously have been on strike. It's kind of get, you know, we're getting back into the swing of going on strike, being something that's in the um, normal experience of people's working lives. I'm hopeful we can also start having these kind of conversations of like, what does a strike actually look like? What happens when we go on strike? What's the purpose of it? Why are we picketing? Um, and, and what can we use that picket line for? Yeah, yeah. And and some stuff, again, it's it's... The result of the, you know, it's a, I think in this sense probably de deliberate or at least semi-deliberate result of the anti-union laws that that some of this stuff is sure. internalised, right? Like it's like the whole six people on a picket line thing, you know, that some some unions can be very assiduous about in some situations. You know, you had kind of some RCN picket lines where uh, they were uh, officials were sort of saying to kind of supporters or well-wishers uh visiting the picket line oh you guys have got to stand over there because if you stand over here with us we'll go over the kind of legal limit of numbers that you're allowed to have on a picket and you know how many i mean how many pickets have you been on in your life where there's been many more than six people and no one's got into any sort of trouble for it do you know what i mean it's not mm. it's not something that like means that 
like everyone's going to get nicked because you've got like nine people there or something like that. But sure. it, and, it, and it's more and it's as likely to be policed by union officials as it is to be policed by the actual police. You know? Well, often often more so. I mean that 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 part of the um, sort of legislative regime actually has slightly ambiguous kind of statutory status because so, it's in a code of practice right it's not in a exactly the the, pick, the picketing yeah. code basically only becomes statutory if and when the police decides to enforce it so if there's a police officer on your picket line that police officer does have the power to say i'm enforcing the picketing code this you know everyone apart from six people have to disperse mm. but until a police officer dis- until the point at which a police officer decides to do that you're, you're not actually breaking the law if you have yeah, yeah, yeah. more people than six on your picket line yeah. so it, that that's that's one area where a, a kind of form of soft defiance of the anti-union laws is actually pretty easy and you're absolutely right that um it's more it's 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 more typical for it to be policed by um uh over cautious union officials than it is um by the actual police um maybe given that we've kind of gotten onto this subject anyway this is a natural point to maybe move on to talking about the role of anti-union laws yeah. in the dispute as we record this today the minimum service levels uh, bill has has been passed into law um which is another reason why i'm particularly frustrated about our strikes being cancelled because it means that very possibly the next set of strikes we call are going to have to deal with and confront this new reality in our industry um so um maybe we can just kind of say a few words about um about this and i mean what what, one thing to say which in a way i suppose is is a positive is that it does reaffirm the fact that the strike weapon can still be effective that a, a tory government felt it needed to um tighten an already pretty draconian legislative regime in response to what's happened. The minimum service levels law commitment predates the strike wave. It's actually from the Tories 2019 manifesto, but it's been quite considerably expanded basically in direct response to the strike wave. Yeah, so, and, and, and interesting that in a, in, a, in a period of time where the government basically seems to be have given up like legislating on basically anything other than like having a go at migrants that this is one of the few things that they've very much like pushed through parliament you know mm. and i think kind of i i've i've been a bit i mean i i didn't i didn't have massive hopes for the kind of what the sort of trade union movement's reactions to this law was going to be because the the movement always they all it all the leadership of the movement always says we will fight these new laws tooth and nail and blah 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 and whatever and you sort of think well what does that actually mean in practice whatever but there's been relatively little pushback against it and one of the one of the main kind of arguments that seems to have been deployed by a lot of union leaders is like well this law is going to be unworkable anyway it'll be unworkable Mm. and like well i mean good if it is but I don't. I don't think that's the basket we should be putting all of our eggs in, right? Indeed, and and also unworkability doesn't mean we'll just be able to have our strikes and it'll be no problem. You know, un, it, the law being unworkable means there might be a very chaotic situation. Um, 
And yeah, there'll be people be, up in front of. There might be people up in front of courts for for defying uh, a work who, order or, who, or whatever. Knows, it's not. Yeah. It's not going to be. It's not going to be a picnic for people. You know, if that if that's the sort of thing that's going to happen. Um. Yeah, I mean the the the, the way that legislation is written. Um. I think the the sort of likely sequence of events basically is that um, if a so what the law requires unions to do is to make quote reasonable efforts unquote to ensure that its members comply with work notices and if the union doesn't do that or if the employer or the state feels the union hasn't done that a court injunction can then be sought against the union and the question will be this is the this is the sort of potential crunch point does the union then strike anyway in direct defiance of having having refused to make efforts to compel its members to scab on their own strikes and then facing an injunction as a consequence for having failed to make those efforts does the union then strike anyway in direct defiance of an injunction um so i think there's definitely a a, a kind of campaigning task now for people to build Build, prepare for that kind of defiance and that is going to mean a lot of kind of pushing and shoving in the movement and um, getting some officials probably to take a stand that they're a bit uncomfortable about taking Yeah, um, but if we, you know if we really want to make the law unworkable in a way that's kind of on our terms, that's that's the way to do it. Yeah, yeah yeah. the other main kind of um, impactful uh, uh, piece of legislation that we've we've seen sort of play out during this strike wave obviously is the bat has been the ballot threshold the 50 percent mm. so even though that's been enforced for a bit longer it's um it, this is the first kind of significant wave of industrial action where you know since that's been on the on the books and there's been kind of there's been mixed successes uh i think of uh unions clearing the ballot threshold and there's been mixed approaches to it so some unions have uh, disaggregated their ballots, which means that you essentially, even even if your dispute is national, you kind of ballot employer by employer. It's kind of what uh, a lot of unions in the health service have done, where you know the N- the NHS as an employer doesn't really exist. The NHS is a collection of several hundred different employers, and what it means is you if you clear the fifty percent turnout in a number of those. Uh, employers it means you can have some action whereas if you aggregate your ballot and you fall short of the 50 percent nationally you can't have any action but then it almost feels like some i think there's been cases where unions have disaggregated and then it it's turned out that if you add up their kind of national turnout it's cleared 50 percent and they've kind of been hoist by their own petard by disaggregating because they could have had uh, national strike had they had they aggregated the ballot, so it's quite a difficult one to call, I suppose. And maybe the maybe the mood of people has caught some of the unions on the hop a bit, thinking that they wouldn't be able to win an aggregated ballot, and then you know, as it turns out, people are sort of more up for it than they thought. Yeah, I mean, I think on the question of aggregation versus disaggregation, I mean, it's obviously a sort of tactical call. There isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. I mean, as a general rule of thumb, I said said there's there's sort of two ways to to, to look at it, I guess. One way is 
just just do whatever is likeliest to give you the mandate to take the most amount of action. That's one approach, and there's obviously a merit to that. There's another approach which I guess would sort of incline you to sort of f- f- tend to favour aggregation where possible, which is you don't want to inculcate any sort of sectional consciousness in your dispute, and you want to kind of keep people together as as much as possible. Um, and you know, there's obviously significant merits to that. Um, and as you say, we've seen it kind of being done both ways by various unions in the straight way with sort of mixed results. I mean, the, the only thing I would add on the sort of ballot threshold question, we've we've already talked about this thing of like renewing mandates being seen as sort of an end in itself rather than the you know the effectiveness of the action you call with the mandate be it being being the thing that you want to focus on. The, the only other thing I'd add is I mean, we've kind of had this like since the ballot thresholds were in place, but it does seem to have um, it, it it does seem to have become quite entrenched in some places. Of people saying things like, "Yeah, you know, we we've had this on London Underground, where a cu- couple of the ballots we've had have just scraped over the line, and and in fact we we only got over the line because of no votes." We've had some reps and activists and officials like really being quite alarmed by this and saying like we can't have this in future like this is we've really got to put like more effort into the ballots and and it was almost invoked in in discussion once we got the mandate in discussions about what kind of action should we call and when the fact that the it was very narrow and that we'd only got over because of the no votes was invoked as an argument against taking quicker and more intense forms of action and i think to me that's another um a way in which people have kind of internalized the anti-union laws a bit because yeah. like look obviously you want to get the biggest turnout possible and you know get people to engage by voting and whatever but everything about the way those ballots are set up you know the fact that they have to be postal the thresholds all of it is designed to suppress uh, you know it's the the thresholds are completely arbitrary they they're designed to um uh suppress participation by by you know b- b- being postal ballots that people have to um, participate in in a very atomized way and frankly, as long as you get fifty percent plus you know as long as you get fifty percent plus one vote, that's enough as far as I'm concerned. Um, and then and then you can you know once you've got the mandate you can go out and kind of build the action. Yeah, I think there's 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 a risk of. Um, internalizing what are arbitrary undemocratic thresholds set by the state to hold us back and seeing them as somehow as, as actually like a really important benchmark and if we don't get if we don't get 70 80 percent turnouts then we can't possibly like call any serious action yeah 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 i mean it's still a democratic mandate and these turnouts are far far higher than than they have been in union votes for for a long time you know and yeah i mean that's... people have short people have short memories as well i mean um before this before the the 2017 trade union act was in effect we didn't have the threshold i remember being involved in strikes where we got i think a 33 percent turnout in our ballot you know a very high majority for action 80 something percent in favor of strike 33 percent turnout we called strikes off the back of that mandate and they were really solid you know people yeah. vote with their feet on strike day so, yeah. um, you know, let's say, uh, an, an, again, an, another example of how we should 
kind of push back rather than internalising the logic of the anti-union laws. It's an unavoidable feature of a strike wave, um, particularly one that's largely overpay, which this has been, given the cost of living crisis, that there comes a point when you get offered a compromise deal, right? Every employer says, every employer starts out saying, oh, we can only give you like a bag of peanuts because that's the absolute most we could possibly afford. And, you know, we're on the verge of bankruptcy and blah, blah, blah. And then after you've been on strike for a bit, they come back and say, oh, actually, how about you have 5%, you know? Even though we said, even though two months ago we said that was utterly unaffordable, you know, you've moved us to this, you know, and then you have the judgment call of, you know, at, at what point do you, at what point do you settle, basically? And I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not someone who, who is necessarily of the opinion that, you know, like union leaderships are just look, they're just always looking for like a way of like selling people down the river and like they're no, always no. going to be like uh they're always going to take the first opportunity to 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 get off and kind of uh whatever whatever shoddy however shoddy a deal is just kind of recommend it to people that, i don't think that is the case and i think it should be recognized that action that has been taken and action that's been built for by union officials has has moved a lot of employers to in some cases significantly right um but it's still the case that you know inflation is running very high and a lot of these deals that have been put on the table while being improvements on the initial offers are still real terms pay cuts you know and that was the case with the deal that was put to uh the unions in the nhs and the kind of uh the, the kind of campaign to reject that deal was done on the basis of it's still a real terms pay cut and it's not going to do anything to solve the kind of long-term staffing crisis in the survey. So it was on that basis, I think, that a lot of people in the NHS came together and wanted to reject the deal. And like that was successfully kind of done in the... Royal College of Nursing, which is one of the big unions in the service, uh, there was a 54% vote to reject that deal. But at the same time, uh, Unison, which is the other of the biggest unions in the service, uh, overwhelmingly voted to accept it. Um, that is, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, and that itself creates a very difficult dynamic then. And it's not... Uh, you know, it's, it it will be the same. For example, in in schools, if where as as we're recording, um, the four uh, school unions are, I think, all recommending uh, the the offer that's on the table to their memberships as well. Um, it's not inconceivable, I think, that in schools you'll end up with a similar position where the membership of some of the unions is, ends up rejecting it, and the membership of others ends up taking it, and then. There's a real, there's a real difficult kind of tactical, strategic questions of how do you take it, how do you take a dispute forward when some unions have settled and other unions haven't, you know, and that's one of the things that the uh, the kind of reject campaign in the NHS and NHS workers say no is trying to grapple with because there's, I think it's fifteen different trade unions in the NHS, many of whom, many of which are massive, some of which are very. Uh, represent very specialised sections of the workforce, and when when things fragment at the point of 
do you take a deal or not? It's a real headache then of in terms of how you how you go forwards with stuff, you know. Um, so ju- maybe just sort of setting that specific question about you know how to relate to particular deals and the the strategic specificities of uh, organizing in these like multi-union um uh uh industries which which by the way and tangentially you know we could we could revisit discussions we've had on this podcast before about industrial unionism in the context of this strike wave and you know have a whole separate discussion about the 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 potential for you know developing organization in a kind of industrial unionist direction that's um that's that's been presented by the strike wave but setting all that aside for a moment could you say a bit more about nhs workers say now as an organization which obviously predates the strike wave comes out of an attempt i think in 2020 initially to get the nhs unions kind of activated on pay um but it seems to me from a kind of outsider's vantage point you know someone not in the health sector it seems to me to be you know partly because it's been around for longer but but uh the kind of best developed um network that that had that might have the potential to 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 kind of grow into something that i think you and i would see see as 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 a more kind of substantial and serious rank and file organization so could could you say a bit about it and and say what you think that potential is how that potential might be realized and what the lessons might be for people attempting to launch similar initiatives in their own industry or union. Yeah, so yeah, so it emerged in the summer of 2020 as a result of in some ways a kind of accident of timing because and this has just happened, you know, a few weeks ago as well where um the kind of p- the pay review bodies for different parts of the public sector report at different times and the the pay review body for most NHS staff is sort of out of step with most of the rest of it. So summer of 2020 uh, the pay review bodies for a bunch of public sector workforces reported um, and the NHS one didn't largely because it, that's not the time of year when it's due to due to report, but because of the, the stresses that the workforce was already under and then COVID uh, and all the rest of it, um, it really got people's backs up in the NHS um, on the basis of, uh, well, you know, other people are being offered a, a pay rise that we're not being offered. And, the kind of first step of the campaign was an attempt to unify all these different trade unions around uh, a unified pay claim, which uh, at the time was was chosen as 15% as being a kind of, um, I mean, there's various ways you can work this out, but a kind of reasonable interpretation of how much people's pay had degenerated in real terms since uh, 2020 uh, since 2010 and um that campaign for 15% successfully moved like two of the significant unions like GMB and Unite behind a 15% pay claim um and it i think successfully pushed some of the other unions to put it although they didn't all unify around a single claim to put in uh like claims for a significant pay rise so you know the R- the RCN claim i think was 12 and a half percent the unison claim was uh, more to do with a flat rate but it was again it was a quite a significant claim and from that 
that's the kind of genesis, although it's three years ago now, basically that's the kind of genesis for the existing pay dispute in the NHS. And the idea that um, we're out for kind of a restoration of the pay that's been eroded during the years of austerity is now sort of common currency in the trade unions. You know, a, a parallel movement happened in the in the doctors union, in the BMA, which, uh, you know, arguably has actually been much more successful at kind of turning the BMA into going for what they term as full pay restoration, which they've worked out at something like a 35% uh, increase. And um, it's been... It, 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 there's di- there's difficulties in terms of organisation, but it's been an organisation which you know without really that much in the way of like resources, money, you know, no no such thing as paid staff. Everyone doing it on their own time, on top of the pressures of working in the NHS and being a trade unionist, has hung together for three years, and it has developed on a kind of cross union basis. You know, because of the nature of it, like a lot of the a lot of the core activist group are members of the RCN, but it it does include people from across the trade union spectrum. It's broader than just kind of nursing staff, and like it does have the potential, I think, to develop into a, a hopefully kind of you know semi permanent rank and file organisation. There's there's all sort there are all sorts of challenges. Uh, and difficulties in a industry where there's 15 different trade unions. Mm. But I mean, I, th- I, I think what's most encouraging about it to me from the outside is that it it is very much about um, you know, and I don't want to be I don't want to be kind of um, reductively sort of anti-political. So um, I hope what I'm about to say isn't sort of misunderstood, but it's it, it is very much about sort of organizing on the immediate class struggle questions. You know, the model of oppositional organization, let's say, that exists in a lot of trade unions is a sort of is a model derived substantially from the way the Communist Party organized in the 1960s and 70s. You know, broad leftism, that's a, a term that'll be familiar to a some of our, at least some of our listeners, where what you want is a kind of network inside a union that basically brings together sort of left-wing individuals. Um, and that's a quite different approach to the sort of rank-and-file type model that I think this podcast identifies with, um, which is fundamentally about um, organising workers at, 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 at a level as close to the shop floor as possible, firstly, as near to the workplace as possible, around the immediate class struggle issues and then using that organization then as a mechanism to um, sort of to kind of radicalize and democratize the unions. Mm. Um, and while obviously, you know, in many ways, NHS workers say no is still at quite an embryonic stage in terms of developing permanent organization and structures. And although, as you've said, it's, as a real challenge being in an industry where there are more than a dozen unions, I think it's probably the um, body that's kind of come out of this strike wave that has the most potential to um, uh, develop in, in that kind of direction. There's obviously a lot we haven't covered. 
Um, you know, big some big strategic questions we haven't really talked about in terms of union, how how the demands of these disputes are formulated. We haven't talked about how negotiations are conducted, which I think has been a a, a, a big and important issue in the strike wave. You know, that question of how are how are the talks between the unions and the employer actually conducted? Who's in that room? How are they accountable? What's yeah, the and, and, and the kind of the kind of insidious practice of like, um, oh, you you only agree to negotiations on condition that everything is absolutely confidential until such yes. a time as the Ex- employer decides that in, it is indeed ex- you know. extremely insidious and, and completely corrosive for um, for democracy. Um, definitely like something that needs to be sort of um, stamped on. We haven't talked about the relationship of the strike wave to politics at all. You know, we've kind of continued the uh, sort of uh, slight sub-syndicalist undercurrent that I think we sometimes (laughs) have on this podcast. And, you know, there is a lot to talk about there. Um, And I think that's, to me, is probably another um, thing that has limited the strike wave is that there hasn't really been any concerted effort by the unions to sort of turn the strikes towards political demands in a um, in, in a consistent way, even though actually in, all, in pretty much all of the big disputes that that would there's a lot of obvious kind of potential for doing that. You yeah, know, and I think it, it, to, even within even not on necessarily on the level of like we need to be advocating for public ownership of such and such industry as a way of sorting sorting out the the terms and conditions in that industry, but even po- even politics in terms of taking stuff into the Labour Party or, you know, in a, in a period now where it looks like, it looks likely that the kind of New Deal for working people uh, Labour policy will be significantly rowed back on, that are the unions going to fight for that in the context of any, a likely incoming Labour government, even on the basis that just one or two elements of that would make a lot of the stuff we've been talking about so much easier, you know, even mm-hmm. even the introduction of electronic balloting and stuff like that, you know, that might make legitimate trade unionism just like a little bit easier in this country. And it, it's, it, you sort of don't really hear a peep from them about it, you know. I mean, we'll yeah. obviously have to, we'll obviously, I might be pleasantly surprised and I, we, I might see a, a Starmer and Reeves-led Labour government institute the whole of that package of reforms but i'm yes well extremely skeptical about that at the moment you know the future is unwritten as they say so look lots still to cover but i think as we said at the top this was intended as a um just a sort of gentle on-ramp back into what will hopefully be um slightly more regular service and both you and i have um written quite extensively about various aspects in the strike wave some strategic aspects some kind of bigger picture stuff so it can link some of that writing in um the episode description and for anyone coming to this podcast absolutely fresh um we should reiterate that um the kind of core team there's 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 four of us um ellie clark who another one of the usual presenters wasn't able to be here tonight She's also been extremely active in the strike wave. She's a, 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 a rep in the PCS, the Civil Service Union. Yeah, you, you might um, have read about her in the New York Times. Uh, I, th- no, I think it was the Washington Post. Oh, was it? Oh, it was the Washington oh. Post. We'll, oh, we'll no big that. deal then. We'll, we'll link that in the episode description as well. Yeah, Ellie made it into an article in the Washington Post about the strike wave. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was a shame the podcast wasn't 
we you know we weren't regularly churning out episodes at that point because we could have piggybacked on on her celebrity um, and then of course Liam who's our producer and the author of a recent book about James Connolly and we are still intending to get the promised episode out looking at Liam's book and specifically talking about James Connolly as a trade union organizer and, and strategist and kind of theorist of of, of trade union organization um, so that will still hopefully be in the pipeline um but yeah, I mean, look, it's good to be back in the um, in the in, in the kind of swing of things minimally. It's nice to connect with you virtually, Ed. Yeah, yeah, I think um, yeah, yeah. Which which one of us do you think is uh, more Rory Stewart, and which one do you think is more Alistair Campbell? Um, I mean, that's difficult to say. I like to think that we both, uh, you know, we both embody the best qualities of those people who are who i think are um paragons of humanity to be yeah, honest yeah we can only all. aspire we can only yeah. aspire to yeah. their to their levels of achievement so yeah we will we will be back with more uh, more kind of traditionally formatted episodes we're looking at aspects of labor history and uh, and starting hopefully with uh, james connolly and uh, one or two others in the pipeline uh, in the meantime uh, please do reach out to us on socials we'd be really really interested to know how uh, how our kind of listenership has experienced the strike wave as, you know, reps, members of trade unions, people that have been out on pickets on demonstrations and uh, and sort of uh, fighting back against the cost of living crisis. So please do let us know. And uh, if anyone from uh, Gary Lineker's Goal Hanger podcast is listening, we are very willing to uh, sell out for a mass audience on Spotify. So uh, please do uh, please do get in touch. And on that note, thank you very much for listening and uh, solidarity for all your ongoing struggles. We'll see you next time. This is Labour, 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 This episode of Labour Days was recorded and produced by Ed Mustill and Daniel Randall. You can find Labour Days at your favourite podcast platform. You can follow Labor Days on Facebook and Labor underscore Days on Twitter.